And now to my final guest, because we have some questions. Will the universe end in the big freeze or the big rip? Can antimatter explain everything? Is time travel possible? Actually, what is time? Well, one of the rock star scientists following in the footsteps of the likes of Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking is Dr Katie Mack. Indeed, she holds the Hawking Chair in Cosmology and Science Communication at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in Canada, where she carries out research on dark matter and the early universe. Dr Mack's also author of the book The End of Everything and wants physics to be more accessible to people. She also gets a name check in the song No Plan by Hosier from his 2019 album Wasteland Baby. Before we hear from Katie Mack, let's take a listen to it. The song No Plan. When mm-hmm. did you find out that you featured? <laughs> um, it was quite a while before the song actually came out. Um, I got a text message from Andrew saying that uh, he had the song and it was about the end of the universe and would I mind if he used my name? And um, So I, I got uh, sort of a little piece of the chorus as a preview of it. Um, just the text. And then I think it, it was many months until I actually heard the song itself. So do you know each other? What's been your interaction? Yeah. Yeah, we we became friends through Twitter um, a, a year or two before. And um, we had uh, corresponded a bit, uh, just chatting about stuff. He's very interested in physics. And so we talked about that. And then, um, yeah, and then he had this song. And I guess he had been watching some videos of mine about the end of the universe or something. And so he thought of me for the, for the song. Yeah, and the line in the song is, as Mac explained, there will be darkness again. Yes. What does that refer to? Yeah. Uh, so that's about the idea that in the distant future, the universe will sort of fade away, essentially. So this is this is the idea behind the heat death of the universe, which is the most likely ending for, for the cosmos, where... Over time, as the universe expands, everything gets farther and farther away from everything else, and stars die, and matter decays, and black holes evaporate, and in the very, very distant future, the universe becomes cold and dark and empty, and just kind of over. <laughs> and that's um, so. That's what "there will be darkness again" refers to. And heat death almost sounds a little bit misleading because it makes me think that mm. things are going to get hotter, but actually getting colder. Right. So it's the big freeze, right? It's the big freeze. Yeah, the the term heat death is a slightly technical term in the sense that it's about the idea that every all the energy kind of decays into waste heat. If you if you can think about um, uh, the idea that that everything turns into more and more disorder, and disordered energy is heat in physics. And so, as everything is decaying, as as matter is decaying and falling apart, and uh, you know stars stop shining and everything all that energy gets converted into just waste heat, into just this disordered energy. And when you get to a point where everything is decayed into that waste heat, you have kind of the maximum disorder, the maximum entropy state of the universe. And that's that's technically when you reach the heat death. You say that's the most likely outcome, mm. but there are several that I suppose are yeah. um, certainly talked about as being the way that the universe may in the distant future end. Why is that one the most likely as opposed to some of the other ones? Well, that's the one that seems to fit the data very well at the moment in terms of as we extrapolate the expansion of the universe into the future, 
that kind of seems to be the direction things are going. So right now we know that the universe is expanding and the expansion is accelerating. And our best guess as to what's causing that acceleration is something called the cosmological constant. So that's essentially just a property of space and time where space has a kind of bit of stretchiness built into it. So as space gets bigger, it gets bigger and bigger. And, you know, if you have more and more space, you have more and more of this kind of outward push of all of space. And so that leads to uh, this accelerated expansion and it leads to the universe emptying out more and more. And so all of our measurements of the, of the evolution of the universe at the moment based on looking at the expansion that happened in the past and how things seem to be going now, it looks like that model matches the data very well. So it really looks like the expansion is just going to continue forever and lead to that heat death. But because we don't understand that acceleration very well, because this idea that it's a cosmological constant is really just one hypothesis, it could be that the acceleration is being caused by something else, something that could change over time, something that might um, become more powerful or, or turn around, you know, some kind of dynamical field. And if that's the case, then you have other possibilities. Like if the if the expansion were to stop and, and reverse because of some change in, in whatever is making the expansion go faster, that dark energy is what we call it. If that dark energy were to change, then, uh, then that would, that could lead to a big crunch where the universe collapses on itself. Or mm. if that dark energy were something even weirder where it got more powerful over time, then that could lead to what we call a big rip where the, the universe kind of tears itself apart in the future. Um, so because we don't really know what the dark energy is, we use the term dark energy to mean whatever's causing the expansion. Mm. We think it's probably a cosmological constant, but we don't know. And, and because we don't know, there are lots of other things that could happen uh, based on what that what the real physics behind that expansion is. The the terms are helpful. Big crunch, big rip, mm. big freeze. Yes. Um, especially <laughs> yeah. for someone like me who's not a cosmologist or anything mm -hmm. to do with astrophysics. Um, mm -hmm. How do you communicate some of these huge ideas? Because I, f I find it incredibly difficult to get my head around the idea that the universe is infinite and also still expanding. <laughs> yeah, you know, a lot of these ideas are very, very hard to get across because it's it's not intuitive, you know, because we we don't think in those terms, usually these time scales and distance scales are far beyond what we can hold in our heads. <laughs> uh, when you're a physicist, you use mathematics to describe the evolution of the universe, we have equations we can write down, and it all kind of makes sense on paper. But translating that to a conceptual understanding, even for physicists can be a challenge and then trying to uh, trying to translate that to a conceptual understanding that makes sense to people who are not used to looking at the equations is even more of a challenge. So it can be hard. I mean, usually we use a lot of analogies and we usually use a lot of visualization kind of ideas um, and we try and get the gist of of what's happening or what what could happen um, in in the future in the universe. But there's always, you know, you have to kind of keep in mind whenever a physicist or cosmologist or astronomer is talking about these kind of big concepts and the the nature of the universe, there's there's some level at which there's there's an unknown, there's approximations, and and we're trying to communicate something that that 
really is a mathematical model that we've constructed that seems to match the data, but may or may not be kind of the the correct way to think of how the universe really is, if you know what I mean. Just because we're all we can really do is is compare a, a you know a sort of mathematical cartoon that we put together to the data, and when we find a good match, we say this is a, a good way to describe what we're seeing in the universe. But it may it may or may not correspond to like the ultimate nature of reality, and that's something that we're always <laughs> trying to work toward. We're always trying to get a better approximation, but we have to keep in mind those limitations. Talking about that ultimate sort of reality, if mm. we can almost go back to the beginning, the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's all where it started, is it? Yeah. What was before the Big Bang, though? <laughs> well, so it depends on what you mean by the Big Bang. <laughs> so this is um, this is another place where the the way that we talk about it is it has some subtleties. So when the idea of the Big Bang was first proposed, when when we can when we had the Big Bang theory as as a proposal for the the start of the universe, what was really being proposed was was really just the idea that the universe in its early stages was hotter and denser and in some sense smaller than it is today. And and the reason that that was proposed is that, you know, people could see that the the universe was expanding, that distant galaxies were getting farther away from each other and farther away from us. And as the universe expands, it's cooling down. And so if you just kind of reverse that in your head, you get that things must have been closer together in the past. Everything must have been hotter and denser in the past. And so in some sense, you know, everything was kind of smaller because it was all squished together into smaller space. Um, And so that's really the kind of the fundamental idea behind the Big Bang Theory is that that everything was smaller and hotter and, and denser, or the universe was smaller in some sense, and everything else was hotter and denser inside the universe. Um, but exactly how that hot, dense state began is still not uh, fully agreed upon. I mean, so we have some ideas about, you know, there. we think there was a a short period of very, very rapid expansion in the very first tiny, tiny fractions of a microsecond at the beginning. And then that that sort of set up the conditions through a very complicated process that created that hot, dense state, and then the universe continued expanding from there. But that really rapid expansion phase that we call cosmic inflation, we don't know for sure that that happened. We have good evidence, but we're not certain of that. And we have no idea what came before that. We don't know what caused that. So, you know, so there are some steps that are kind of missing in that picture. But to be fair, we can, we can, we have really good information about what happened within the first like 0.01 milliseconds or something like we can get to very, very, very short times uh, from whatever the very beginning was, where we can say with really good certainty, what was going on in terms of, you know, particles coming together and, and the temperature of the universe and, and what the plasma was doing and how the laws of physics were changing at those early times. Like we have really good models. We just don't know the very, very beginning. And that's where that's where a lot of the sort of speculative stuff comes in. And that's where a lot of the sort of big conversations are. Mm. Because I don't really have a concept of what shape the universe is. Or yeah, how mean, did it end up the way that it is? Is that just pure chance? Yeah. No, I mean, well, that's, <laughs> that's part of what we don't know. The shape is an interesting question, because there's there's two different ways of thinking about shape. Like there's um, 
you can think about shape in terms of like what something would look like from the outside. You know, if you look at a ball, it's round from the outside, but there's also shape in the sense of like, is, is space curved from within? And what I mean by that is like, um, in, in the universe, if you take, you know, two laser beams and you shoot them parallel to each other, do they keep going straight all the time? Do they curve inward? Do they curve outward? You know, what's the shape as you're moving through the space? And that's, that's uh, an idea of shape that we talk about in cosmology a lot. And from that perspective, the shape is, is what we would expect it to be. It's, we call it flat, but it just means that like laser beams go straight parallel to each other forever. There doesn't seem to be any large scale like curvature to the universe. And so that intrinsic shape seems to be just kind of normal, flat, uninteresting, but we can't see the universe from the outside if there is any kind of outside. <laughs> so we don't know if on the very, very largest scales, the universe might curve around on each other on itself, mm. like on the earth. If you stand on the earth and you shoot two laser beams parallel to each other, you know, on the surface of the earth, they seem to go straight forever. But if, if you if you really drew straight lines across the surface of the earth, they would at some point come together because the earth's surface is curved on a very large, um, on a very large scale. And so in, it might be that the universe is curved on a very large scale, and it might be that it comes around and meets itself in the other, on the, you know, on the other end in some way. Mm. Uh, but we, but we don't know because all we can do is measurements from within the universe. We we don't know if there's an edge. We don't see any evidence for an edge. It seems to just keep going. But we know that there's a limit to how far we can see, and that's called our cosmic horizon, where you just you can't see farther than that because essentially the the light from more distant places would have taken so long to get to us that it would take longer than the age of the universe so there hasn't been time to get light from farther away because it just it's too far a distance and light takes some time to travel so we have this region around us that we can see and within that region there doesn't seem to be any edge there doesn't seem to be any change in the nature of space you know between any other any different points in that space and it doesn't seem to have any kind of curvature on the large scales, but we don't know for sure that the universe might not, you know, curve around if you if you could really zoom out enough. But yeah. we can't zoom out. <laughs> so that's the problem that that we're too small mm -hmm. to really understand well, how big it is. Well, I mean, we don't. Yeah, we don't know if there is a size. You know, maybe mm. it's infinite completely. Maybe it goes on forever. Uh, maybe it's uh, bounded in some way. We we don't have information beyond our cosmic horizon, and, and we have some ideas about like that whole thing about the universe expanding very very rapidly in the beginning. That gives us some clue that the universe probably goes on a lot farther than what our cosmic horizon is, but. We we don't really have any information from from beyond that. So so we're we're limited to a sort of small um, region of what seems to be a much much larger space, and so we can only make certain kinds of inferences within that region about what the larger space might be doing. Mm. How stable is the universe? Huh. Um, that's a really good question, and that's a question that that uh, physicists are asking a lot these days. Um, uh, specifically in the context of what's called vacuum decay. And this is something that um, that ties into a, a possibility for the end of the universe. So I mentioned before that in the very, very early universe, the laws of physics did change uh, at, at some point in the very, very early universe. Essentially, when the universe first began, there were 
different kinds of particles and fields and interactions and things. And then something happened. Um, we call it the the Higgs mechanism, but it's, it's, it was this thing where some particles became massive and the, the, the kinds of particles that we have in our universe kind of came into being at that point. And the forces of nature that exist in our universe kind of came to being or changed at that point. And that set up the conditions where we can have atoms and molecules and electromagnetism and all of that kind of stuff. But before that, there were different laws of physics. And that's all based on what we call our vacuum state. So just like the state of physics in our universe. Um, and it looks like it's possible that our vacuum state could change in the future. <laughs> and uh, and it has to do with the Higgs field, which is this energy field that's throughout all of space and that's connected to the Higgs boson, which was a particle recently discovered by mm -hmm. the Large Hadron Collider that has to do with how particles got mass in the early universe, this whole process of physics changing in the early universe. So it looks like it's it might be possible for that the Higgs field, our, our vacuum state, to change again. Um and if it did, that would that would totally change the the physics of the universe and and basically destroy everything. Um, and the the thing is that it's one of these things where we we think it probably can't happen for you know a huge extraordinarily long time. Like it's probably something that if it if it's possible at all, it would be ten to the power of a hundred years at the least before it's likely to occur. Uh, but it's the kind of thing where we wouldn't be able to predict when it would happen or how it would happen. It would it would kind of happen in one place and then spread through the universe and and sort of destroy everything. And so it's it's this very dramatic idea. But I should say, you know, the idea of vacuum decay is it's interesting from a physics point of view. It's interesting for us to think about and talk about. Uh, but um, you know, almost certainly completely irrelevant to, to any sort of human experience because, <laughs> first of all, we don't know for sure if it can happen because the the whole idea of it relies on an understanding of physics that we probably don't entirely have. And then also, you know, if it do, if it can happen, we don't expect that it's possible for for you know many many trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years. So. It's it's a cool idea to think about uh, the idea that maybe our universe isn't totally stable, but uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't lose sleep about it. Susie Ferguson with you this morning on Saturday morning here on RNZ National. My guest is Katie Mack, theoretical astrophysicist. Her book that you may be familiar with is called The End of Everything. Someone else on the show this week who lives in Canada, the writer Anne Michaels. Now she has a book. It is full of big questions. They're woven right through it. Um, it's called Held. And there's this one on the opening page. The speed of light can only reference time. Do you agree? Um, it's an interesting way of putting it. Because um, what is time? Right. Well, so the way that the way that we think of space and time in modern physics is that space and time are connected to each other through what we call space time. So if you imagine like a grid, you know, through the whole universe, there's three dimensions, you know, in that grid, right? Three three directions. Um, you kind of have to think of time as like another direction, but it's part of the same grid. And so the way that you move through space and time is that you move to different points on this, this four-dimensional grid, right? Where, where three dimensions are space and one is time. And 
in that context, this is Einstein's relativity, in that context, the speed of light is kind of um kind of built into that grid almost like uh almost like a, a standard you know ruler kind of built into the grid so the way that you move between points on that grid is limited by moving you know at at, at or below the speed of light depending on what kind of particle you are um and and so the speed of light is is very much built into how space and time are related to each other at, at least in the sense of how we move through space and time so yeah, so there's definitely a strong connection between time and the speed of light in the context of how our universe works. Mm. Because I guess we often think of time as a linear, sort of a 2D concept, um, mm-hmm. you know, past, present, future. But right. how, how real is that? And is that just a way of our brain trying to make sense of something that's too big to cope with? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. So in in relativity in einstein's relativity uh the way that you move through time is dependent on the way that you're moving through space and when you add in the concept of gravity it be it becomes even more um, contingent because with gravity the way that you move through time also depends on how close you are to a gravitating object so for example on the earth if you are uh, on the surface of the earth versus if you're suspended, you know, hundred meters above the surface of the earth, time will move differently for those two people, right? The person on the earth will experience time being a little bit slower than the person who's suspended above it. And similarly, if you are standing on the surface of the earth, or if you're in a jet plane, you know, uh, shooting through, through the sky at a very high speed, the when you go at a higher speed, your time moves more slowly than if you're standing still. And and it's not just a matter of perception, it's really a matter of how you're moving through space-time. And so it really does change how time moves for you, depending on when you're in these different environments. If you're moving very fast, if you're very close to a gravitating object. And so time is not this like very uh sort of regular thing that's the same for everybody. In relativity, people can disagree about how time is passing. People can disagree about whether one event occurs before or after another event based on how they're moving around. So there's there's this very deep sense in which once you consider relativity, time is uh, is a is a much more personal thing. And, and and again, not just perception, not just like how you feel about it or how you think about it, but how time is moving for you, how you are moving through space-time um, as an object in, in the universe. So time travel then mm-hmm. is real. It does already happen. It's just not how we think of it as getting into a time yeah. machine and keying in the number that we want to go back to or the year that we want to go forward to. Sure. I mean, we're all traveling through time, and some of us are potentially traveling through time more quickly than others. The the, the problem is that we're all moving the same direction, right? Um, everybody's moving toward the future, and we don't have any we don't have any way of of changing that that we're aware of in in physics. Uh, it may it might be that that there's some possibility for traveling backward in time that we haven't thought about yet, but it seems that in the universe, the way we we think it works, we can only travel forward in time. There there are ways that you can put together the equations uh, where if you arrange, 
you know, black holes or cosmic strings or something in, in mm. a particular configuration and move through them at half the speed of light or something like that, then then in principle, you can have paths through space-time that, that can get you into your own past. But in practice, it doesn't seem like any of those are really possible. Um, and there there may even be some kind of fundamental principle of the universe that prevents it. Uh, we don't we don't know, but in in practical terms, we're all moving through time. We're all time traveling, but we're all moving toward the future. So we're not going to be able to go back and and make you know those difficult moral decisions that get put forward in TV shows about whether you should intervene in the Second World War or whatever else it might be. Right. Okay. Yeah, it does. It doesn't seem like it. I mean. You know, I can't rule out that maybe there will be some dramatic uh, shift in our future understanding of physics or our technology. But based on what we currently understand, it, it doesn't seem like that's a viable possibility. All of this is incredibly difficult to get your head round. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's go a bit further then with things like gravitational waves. Sure, yeah. The discovery and research into those, I mean... Mm-hmm. What are they? Where do they come from? What do they do? Yeah, gravitational waves are a f- fantastic new tool that we have to understand the universe. So the idea, well, when Einstein started studying gravity, um, he he kind of shifted our perspective of gravity being, it, it had been thought of as a force between things. So, you know, you have two two different masses and they they have some force between them and that's the gravitational force. He changed our perspective to to being the idea that gravity is really it's to do with the shape of space-time. So I, I mentioned, you know, we have this sort of grid of space and time, and that grid is like malleable. It can be it can be curved, it can be bent. And specifically what happens is in the presence of a massive object, it kind of bends toward that object. And it, it's very hard to visualize. Usually we use an analogy where you know, if you if you take a uh, trampoline, you imagine that's space, and then you put a bowling ball in the center of the trampoline, then, you know, everything's kind of curved toward that bowling ball, and you can roll, you know, a tennis ball past the bowling ball, and it'll kind of orbit around. And that's that's a, a, a pretty good analogy for how things work in the universe if you add more dimensions, you know. Um, like, the reason that a moon orbits around a planet is because the 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 planet is bending the space in its vicinity and the moon is just trying to go in a straight line but it's going through a curved space and so it it creates this orbit and it and it curves around going through that curved space and so that's that's einstein's picture of gravity that's general relativity the idea that that gravity is the result of bending of space by massive objects and it turns out in this picture uh when massive objects move around in certain ways, they can create kind of ripples in that fabric of space. Uh, and those ripples are gravitational waves. Um, kind of like if you, you know, throw a rock into a pond and you get ripples on the water, there's a sense in which, you know, the, that moon moving around that planet is creating ripples in gravity and in, in the in space itself. Those are gravitational waves. And we've gotten to the point now where we have the technology to d- detect that the those ripples in in space and and in this case it's not you know space kind of going up and down the way that the surface of a pond goes up and down but it's a kind of stretching and squeezing of space uh that travels outward and so when uh when two black holes are orbiting each other uh somewhere nearby that creates these waves that 
pass through space around them and those waves stretch and squeeze things that that they that they run into and so we've created we've created these amazing devices that can detect when space is being stretched and squeezed here on the earth and and so can detect when gravitational waves are coming from when black holes or neutron stars which are very very dense dead stars when those are are orbiting around each other and and spiraling in and colliding and so we've been able to detect these these ripples in space from black holes colliding in other galaxies, which I think is amazing. It is amazing. And if it's something that is as significant that can stretch and squeeze space, do we have mm-hmm. any idea of what effect it has on us or indeed on anything else on the planet? So it's it's an incredibly tiny change. I mean, in principle, yeah, it is stretching and squeezing your body a little bit. But But to give you some context, the LIGO experiment, which is the large interferometry, uh, the laser interferometry gravitational observatory, um, it, it's a gravitational wave detector. What it what it's built of it is it has two uh, arms that these long uh, vacuum tubes basically that stretch out at right angles to each other, and each of these arms is four kilometers long, and they can detect that that instrument can detect when the length of one of those arms changes. And that's how they can tell um, that a gravitational wave is coming through. But the, the change in the distance in that um, on that across that four kilometers, the change in the distance from one end of, to the other is something like one thousandth the width of a single proton. <laughs> and that's across <laughs> four kilometers. <laughs> so, you know, your body is not going to notice <laughs> that level of, of change. That's not, it's not going to have any effect on you. It's not going to have any effect on anything except the, the kinds of instruments that are designed to detect that level of, of distortion. But that's part of what makes the experiment so amazing is that they can actually detect that level of distortion. Mm. One, you know, a change of, of that distance, um, over four kilometers is, is just uh, mind boggling. It is mind-boggling. And a word about matter and antimatter, and I I think this is where Mm -hmm. I really begin to start grasping in terms of the edge of my even remote understanding of this. But Mm anti-hydrogen was discovered. And why is that such a big deal? Right. Yeah. So antimatter is, is, is really fascinating stuff that it gets a lot of play in science fiction. Um, Really what antimatter is, is, like for the particles that we know about in the universe, like electrons or protons, um, there's there's an antimatter version of an electron, for for example, um, where it's just like a regular electron. The the only difference is that instead of being negatively charged, like an electron is, it's positively charged. And there's some sense in which there's a kind of mirror uh, mirror distortion I, that I kind of can't go into because it it's too mathematical, but. Basically, it's the same as an electron, except it's positively charged. And so, there. So these posi- they're called positrons, the the anti electrons, and they're only produced in sort of high energy processes, uh, uh, things that happen in like the centers of stars or in you know radiation jets from from astrophysical objects. But if a positron and an electron meet, then they annihilate with each other. So they come together and they turn into like uh, gamma rays, right? And so it's it's a cool idea because you can convert matter into energy very quickly by through this annihilation. And so a lot of uh, physics experiments deal with antimatter 
um, they can produce antimatter in a bunch of different ways, and they look at you know how antimatter works and how it interacts with regular matter. And there was an experiment at CERN that was recently done where they produced a bunch of antihydrogen. So they produced you know antiprotons and 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 positrons and created these neutral hydrogen atoms that were made of these uh, made of these antiparticles. And um, and they were trying to figure out if this antihydrogen would act the same way as regular hydrogen in a gravitational field. Because usually when you're doing particle experiments, gravity doesn't really come into it. Everything is is so light and moving so quickly that you just, you know, you don't notice the the little bit of falling that it might do across the length of the experiment because it's just going so fast that, you know, the, the gravitational effect is tiny. But they, they in this experiment, they figured out how to make the hydrogen um, how to how to slow to slow the hydrogen down enough that that it, they could drop it basically. <laughs> so they made like a sample of antihydrogen and then dropped it to see if it fall in the same way as regular hydrogen did. Because there there was you know some possibility, certain kind of weird theories where maybe maybe antimatter falls up. You know, like yeah, anti gravity, um, right? For sure. Right, right. Um, but it turns out it falls down. So it oh. really is just like regular matter, but it's just got the signs flipped. And if you if you annihilate it with its you know partner, then it then it annihilates. But um, but antimatter is. Uh, I feel like it's it's in some ways it's way more prosaic than most people <laughs> than most people sort of think of it because it's it's not that weird. It's just it's got this this different sign, and then you know you it'll annihilate. So if you if you drop the antihydrogen. Like the way they knew how that where the antihydrogen go was going when they dropped it is that as soon as they dropped it, it would annihilate against the walls of the container, <laughs> and so they looked at where those annihilations happened and they saw that they were happening lower and lower as time went on as the stuff was dropping. But you know, so you so it's very hard to like contain this stuff and hold on to it because as soon as you put it in a bottle, it annihilates against the walls of the bottle. Um, so you have to play around with magnetic fields and and do this very complicated uh, manipulation. And that's why we don't do much practical stuff with antimatter because it's uh, it's just very delicate and it's, it, it causes these, you know, these little annihilations all over the place. But it, it's it's great fun with uh, in science fiction because you can create a, you know, a very efficient, um, you know, uh, engine by annihilating well, antimatter with regular matter to create, you know, uh, a huge bursts of radiation. And that's how like Star Trek Star Trek's run. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was going to say, yeah. does this mean that Star Trek was right? Well, I mean, <laughs> one of the things, one of the very common plot points in Star Trek is the loss of antimatter containment, which is the entire ship, right? <laughs> so, so it's not, it's not like it would be fun to work with. Um, and I think that the problem, the problem with using antimatter for something like propulsion is that it's, it's quite hard to contain and it's also complicated to produce. And so, um, it's, it may be, it might not ever be like a very, uh, you know, a very effective or, or practical means of, of energy production because you do have to expend energy just to make it. Um, but uh, but in the in principle, if you had a whole bunch of antimatter and you had it contained in some way and you were able to, in a controlled way, combine it with regular matter, then you would produce quite a lot of energy. Mm. Is there a possibility that antimatter, how could antimatter explain the existence of everything? Right. Yeah. So, so this is, so why antimatter and matter exist the way they do is a big 
a big mystery. Specifically, why why matter exists at all is kind of a big mystery in physics. So so I mentioned that antimatter is kind of not that weird uh, from a physics perspective. From a physics perspective, there there shouldn't be that much difference between matter and antimatter in terms of how physics deals with these different kinds of things of stuff. And so when we think about the very early universe where, you know, the universe was very hot and dense and, and you know, something happened that, that produced all the energy in the very early universe, and that energy turns and in, turned into particles, and then the particles turned into galaxies and all of that kind of stuff. Um, we we don't understand why in that very early universe when everything was so hot and dense that it was basically just radiation, we don't know why that radiation didn't turn into equal amounts of matter and antimatter. Because, like I said, if you take an electron and a positron mm. and you throw them together, they produce gamma rays. You can also set things up where you can put, put gamma rays together and electrons and positrons. And and it should be that that you create equal amounts, right? And so if you started with a universe that was just a whole bunch of very high-density energy, then it really should be that, based on our, our understanding, it should be that you'd produce matter and antimatter in equal amounts. And if that were the case, all the antimatter and all the matter would annihilate, and you wouldn't have you know, stuff. You would just, you would create, you know, matter and antimatter, it would mm. annihilate, you would have a bunch of radiation, and you wouldn't have like stable matter. But but when we look at the universe, we know that that almost all of the stuff in the universe is all of the almost all the matter in the universe is regular matter. Um, antimatter only exists through, you know, complex high energy interactions. It's it's produced a little bit here and there, but it's not there's not like a big you know, chunk of antimatter in some other galaxy. Like every, all the stuff that we can see as far as we can tell is, is regular matter. Mm. And so there must have been some asymmetry uh, between the matter and the antimatter in the very, very early universe where something must have happened that treated matter differently from antimatter so that there could be a little bit more regular matter. And so when the antimatter all annihilated against regular matter, it didn't, it didn't destroy everything, Right. And so there, there should have been, there had to be something left over that was regular matter, and then that regular mm. matter was able to produce all the stuff we see. And so, getting a better understanding of antimatter and how it works and how it interacts with regular matter and how to produce it and all this kind of stuff could be the the thing that helps us to explain how everything exists <laughs> because <laughs> because it it could tell us where that asymmetry came from, and at, at the moment we really don't know. Quite astonishing. Um, mm. You write that the world is a small sentimental speck of dust. Um, and of yes. course, humanity is not probably even a blip really in the universe. No. How do you no, respond I mean, to that? Is that depressing? Is it comforting? Is it awe-inspiring? I I feel like it's it's a little bit of each. You know, I, I don't find it depressing. So So one of the... One of the things that you learn when you study cosmology is is just how insignificant we are. And when I say we, I mean humans, but also just like regular stuff. So so I mentioned dark energy before as this, whatever it is that's making the universe expand faster. We know that most of the sort of energy density of the universe is dark energy. What We don't know what dark energy is, but it's something like 70% of what makes up the universe. And then of the rest of it, we know that some, something like 
something like 85% of the matter in the universe is not is not antimatter, but it's dark matter. And dark matter is something that we also don't understand. It's it's some kind of invisible matter um, that's that we're still trying to figure out what it's made of and how it works, but we're we're pretty sure that it's it's some kind of stuff that's different from all of the particles that we deal with in laboratories and stuff like that. And so that that makes up sort of 25% of the universe. And then the, the leftovers, <laughs> the little 5% that's left after the 70% of dark energy and 25% of dark matter, that 5% is like atoms and molecules and electrons and protons and all of the particles we deal with and, and all of the radiation that we can see. And so so it's not just that humans are insignificant, it's that the stuff that we're made of is, is insignificant, you know, <laughs> you know like... You can you can explain the distribution of galaxies in the universe, the the sort of large scale evolution of the universe, all of that stuff with with regular matter just being an afterthought. Like you do all the simulations without mm. it, and then you can sprinkle it on afterward, and it looks just the same as what we see, you know, out in our telescopes. So our stuff, our regular matter, is really pretty unimportant to the universe in in, in some big ways. It, it becomes important when you talk about you know individual galaxies and stuff like that. But in terms of the large scale evolution of the universe, we we really don't matter. And it's I feel I find that kind of kind of um, reassuring because you know, we can't mess things up too much. <laughs> like if we're, if we're totally unimportant to the way the universe works, that's, that's probably good because I don't want to trust us <laughs> with, with the evolution <laughs> of the universe. But it's also really inspiring that, that even as insignificant as we are, you know, as, as unimportant to the universe as we are, as small and delicate and, you know, isolated as we are, we have such an amazing understanding of how the universe works. You know, we can describe the universe from a tiny fraction of a second after whatever the beginning was through the whole evolution of galaxies and stars and planets and into the future. And we can, we can talk about what fraction of the universe is this invisible dark energy? What fraction of the universe is this invisible dark matter? Like we, we have these amazing models uh, and equations that describe everything we see. We can do all that despite being totally powerless and, and unimportant in the universe. And I, I find that really kind of inspiring. Mm. In the same way as you could turn the radio on and hear a song called Mo Plan by Hosier, which references you. Um, mm. Is it relaxing to turn on the TV and see shows that that feature aspects of your work, whether it's you know some sort of science fiction or or Doctor Who or that kind of thing, or is that just annoying? <laughs> um, I I love science fiction. I I don't find it annoying. I I do notice when they get things wrong. <laughs> so um, so I notice where there are you know um, scientific inaccuracies. In, in my field in in science fiction I don't I don't hold it against a show or a story if it doesn't have all the science exactly right partially because you have to have a fictional element in there somewhere to drive the story right like mm. that's it, it it would just be a documentary if everything was exactly how it is right now um, so part of speculative fiction is is speculating about what if something so what if things were different and in, and especially in sort of space dramas, it's very hard to get a space drama to work without breaking something because you need, <laughs> you know, you, you need to travel to other galaxies or something like that. And, and you know, that that takes technology. We don't have laws of physics that we don't have. 
um, some people can. I've seen some science fiction that doesn't that that does not break relativity in certain ways, but it's it's difficult to 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 get through that. So, mm. um, so I don't mind. I I do like it when whatever rules they've set up are internally consistent. So I like it when whatever they whatever they do, it kind of follows their own rules, and they're not just kind of you know throwing in little magic pieces to um, <laughs> to advance the story. But um, but yeah, I don't I don't mind. I um, I like thinking about you know different possibilities. I like thinking about spaceships and time travel and like it's it can be they, those kinds of stories can be a lot of fun. So I don't mind it. That is Dr. Katie Mack of the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in Canada, also the author of The End of Everything, an absolute treat to talk to her. Tony's been in touch about this, saying we talk about the universe expanding, but from where? From us? Are we at the centre of the universe or are we on the edge? Are there on other universes and are they expanding too? If so, will they collide with ours? What effect will this cause? Is it like two waves on the shore colliding? So many questions, so many questions, Tony. There were so many questions and it was an absolute treat to speak with Katie.